He starts telling me the stories of the glories of his past But he always saves the story of his coring for the last And he says my core is coming No more sad stories coming My midnight moonlight morning glory is coming, aren't you girl? And like I told you, when she holds you she enfolds you in her world. Good morning and welcome to episode 1471 of Effectively Wild, the baseball podcast on Fangraphs.com. Brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Sam Miller of ESPN, along with Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Hello, Ben. Hello. We're going to be talking about uh, 10 Major League Baseball teams and things that we missed earlier this year. Uh, but mm-hmm. uh, before we do that, uh, there was... The, the season of baseball activity uh, continued. Um, yep. the, Corey Kluber was traded. Madison Bumgarner was signed. Uh, those are two big pitchers. I, I spent uh, much of Saturday night talking to somebody at a party who all they wanted to know was was which two good pitchers the Angels were going to sign to make all <laughs> of this plan work for the team. Um, mm-hmm. And now those two pitchers, the two pitchers that he had heard of, are both gone. Yeah, that's right. Yes. So... Madison Bumgarner signed a five-year, $85 million deal with the Diamondbacks, and Cleveland traded Corey Kluber for what has, I think, generally been regarded as quite a light return. The Rangers acquired Kluber for Delano DeShields Jr. and Manuel Classe, who is a reliever and uh, a very promising reliever, a nasty reliever who throws like a triple-digit cutter and had a fangrass post written about him in august just because of how extraordinary his stuff seemed he throws a lot of strikes he gets a lot of grounders and he's 21 years old so they got something back but i think the consensus fairly is that it was not a lot back for Corey Kluber. And Mm -hmm. the only way that it really makes sense to me as a baseball trade as opposed to a financial one is if there are things about Corey Kluber's injury that maybe teams know that we don't know, that he missed most of last season. He uh, He didn't pitch particularly well before the injury. Then he got hurt. It was a, a fairly serious thing, and we don't know of any lingering effects, but if there are concerns about that, then I guess that could account for it in theory, because you wonder kind of, well, if the Rangers got Cooper for that package, then why weren't the Angels interested, or why weren't the Twins trying to trade for him? Well, maybe the Twins couldn't have, because Cleveland might not have wanted to trade him within the division, but, you know, why didn't someone put together a, a better offer than that? Because it's just, it's not much. But it seemed like Cleveland was shopping Kluber long enough and that he was connected to enough teams that it probably wasn't one of those cases where the team was just in such a rush to trade someone that they didn't call around or make sure they got the best package in return. And, you know, Kluber had a forearm fracture and missed a a lot of time. He was out from May on, basically. And and I guess the cause for concern is that he didn't pitch very well before Mm -hmm. that injury. And that's sort of worrisome and he wasn't getting as many whiffs and his velocity is down. He's lost a couple ticks, I guess, given his age and given that 2018 was a good season, but not one of his best seasons. Maybe there's some just lingering ineffectiveness there. That's that's the only thing I can think of. But still, he's Corey Kluber and this was just not a lot to get back for Kluber, it doesn't seem like. Yeah, I uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, you know my uh, 127 hours thing, right? Where 
when I watch a, the movie 127 hours, I, I have to fight the instinct for my brain to go, oh, come on, just pull harder. And yeah. <laughs> remind myself that if he could pull harder to get his arm out before he sawed it off with a pocket knife, he would have tried that. And yeah. the this is an underwhelming deal. And it, in, in some ways, if you proposed it uh, on a message board, uh, it would kind of defy belief. It feels, though, that the incentives are definitely for Cleveland to have tried to get the best they could. And it's, it is data that this is what they got. I think I don't, it's not conclusive of anything, but you Mm -hmm. do sort of have the feeling. You don't have the feeling you uh, speculating. I don't imagine that they finished this trade in the Cleveland front office and gave each other high fives. Like there's something, Mm -hmm. there's something about it that feels like, like, well, I don't know, maybe, I don't know, some combination of, uh, well, ownership told us to do a thing and they probably maybe didn't think it was in their best interest but mm-hmm. i'm totally like speculating here right Obviously, yeah I well know, but uh ownership told him to cut to cut costs uh you work for ownership you do the thing that sucks and then um and then there's not much market out there as it turns out for cory kluber for whatever reason um and um so it's a it's disappointing for for cleveland it's disappointing yeah. i think to, to it's always disappointing to see a great player get traded from a competing team so there's mm-hmm. that too um yep. i don't know who's happy here except for texas no i mean it's the second straight winter when cleveland seemed very interested in offloading good players and not very interested in acquiring good players yeah so. to be I, I i i do think though to be somewhat fair to cleveland when we were talking about them last offseason and they were shopping trevor bauer and maybe Corey kluber they did not mm-hmm. trade either one right they yep. were they were talking about it and they didn't trade it and it seemed really weird and they didn't do it and then when they did trade Trevor Bauer when they finally yep. did trade Trevor Bauer it was for good major leaguers it was to mm-hmm. make their team better right now arguably or at least to make their team you know a little bit more well rounded and and it was not a punt and so when we were seeing trade rumors saying Corey Kluber is available it might not have been like well they were trying to cut costs and get four prospects they might have been trying to trade Corey Kluber for two good major leaguers uh, mm-hmm. on the other hand here we have them trading Corey Kluber for uh, you know <laughs> a young reliever and, and right. cost saving so maybe and, not yeah i mean this is it seems like a straight salary dump i mean they got something back but unless cleveland turns around and uses that money to sign some other good starter or you know give lindor an extension or something which based on the way that they've operated over the past year does not seem very likely it just seems like a straight we've got to save some money and so trade Corey kluber so i know it's not a big media market and they don't draw well but that's uh sort of a shame i, I guess you know he's he's signed for 17 and a half million in 2020 that's like basically the the cole hamels deal that cole hamels just signed except that he's Corey kluber and then there's a like a club option for the following year that will become a vesting option if he pitches 160 innings and if he's not injured at the end of the season but if he does those things then you would be happy to have him back probably for 18 million in 2021 so you know cleveland has i think excelled at pitcher development and even after this trade they still have clevenger and bieber and and Crasco and guys who came up this past year like Garen Savale and Zach Plesac. So they've done a good job of developing pitchers and in that sense they're dealing from a strength. Maybe they can be competitive even now but that doesn't mean this trade made them better in any way. It's just that after narrowly missing the playoffs in 2019 you'd hope that they would go out and try to get better instead of going in the other direction. I guess we'll see what Kluber looks like. But even if it's unfortunate for Cleveland fans It is fortunate, I guess, for fans of other AL Central teams because uh, the White Sox and the Twins now have a a better shot. I think 
the twins inactivity thus far is is maybe more glaring now because it seems like they have a real opportunity here obviously they're coming off a great season but maybe prime for some regression after taking such a large leap so you'd like to see them be a little more active and they haven't really done much other than bring back Michael Pineda so they could use some some pitching too but the Rangers meanwhile I don't know that they are quite to the point where I see them as a good team, but you can start to see them as a potential wildcard contender because uh, I saw Eric Steven tweet that Rangers starters, other than Lance Lynn and Mike Miner last year, had a 7.22 ERA in 97 starts. So there was just nothing there. And now they've added Corey Kluber, Kyle Gibson, and Jordan Lyles, which, uh, I mean, that's a, a pretty great rotation that they have suddenly assembled there it projects to be i think one of the better rotations in baseball they also had the third worst offense in the american league so yes they did that <laughs> yes no i'm not saying they're good but but it is refreshing to see them go for it like i don't know that that they're going to get what they want out of this at least in the coming year but it is fun to see teams that we have not seen go after it in a while try to go after it and i don't know how much of that is because of the new ballpark that they are opening which was on fire at one point this weekend and they put out the fire and also traded for Corey kluber so so that's nice and uh, i guess they could still go out and get donaldson or someone whom they have been connected to but they've gotten a good deal better to the point that uh, i don't know they could start to worry the angels at least if not the a's and the astros yeah it could be uh it could be like uh the the al could be what 13 teams trying 12 teams trying this year which is not yeah, bad it, no especially after last year after the lopsidedness of the super teams and the terrible teams we're seeing i guess good 11 players probably 11 yeah i guess but good players going to non-playoff teams i mean rendon going to the angels and kluber going to the rangers granted from a non-playoff team but from a pretty good one mm -hmm. and then bumgarner going to the diamondbacks who were competitive but uh, did not end up making the playoffs so that is refreshing to see. Of course, if it's you know just coming from other not-so-great teams that also didn't make the playoffs last year, then that doesn't help with the lopsidedness so much. But there will be a lot of teams that uh, will be in the running and fun to watch in 2020 that were not those things in 2019. Mm -hmm. And I don't have as much to say about Bumgarner. Bumgarner uh, stayed in the division, went to Diamondbacks. I guess it's sort of surprising to to see them offload Granky and then still be talking about trading Robbie Ray but then bring in Bumgarner but well they got four prospects for Zach Granky yes, and yeah. now they have Zach Granky then they have four prospects in Madison Bumgarner yep they've done a really good job of picking up unsung players and turning them into good ones and they're pretty well set up I think for the future so Bumgarner is just I mean five years uh, i guess you could have some concerns about how bumgarner will age over those five years but uh they're not expecting an ace really from him i don't think it's uh five years in in 85 so yeah i mean if it were four years in 85 <laughs> it seems like we'd like it more <laughs> yeah i guess yeah it's probably the, fi but... the fifth year seems like more than you thought he'd get but the money doesn't seem like more than i no. mean if you mm -hmm. if you like just if you adjust the pre-offseason contract predictions for mm -hmm. you know what we've actually seen happen he mm -hmm. you know he got a little bit more than was expected but uh not like 
a lot of other pitchers, uh, a lot of other players got more than they were expected. So mm-hmm. in this market, um, it seems like it's not a bad deal. I would be perfectly happy giving $85 million in five years to Madison Bumgarner. Yeah, sure. So sort of sad for the Giants, I guess, to, to lose someone who is very important to the franchise and, and to not really have a, a whole lot else to interest you in the 2020 team right now. But uh, I don't know. I guess hopefully they put that money to good use on the international market or player development or something mm. and build themselves back up again. Yeah, yeah. I wonder what the Angels will do. I know, and and the Twins, the Twins really need some pitching too, not as much as the Angels do, but yeah, what are the options that are left now? I mean, David Price, I guess, is a potential trade target, Ryu is -hmm. still available. Keiko. Keiko, yeah, that's, yeah, I don't know if that's enough to uh, make me optimistic about the Angels going into next year. They'd have to sign or trade for at least two of those guys. Hmm. So the pressure's on. I don't. I'm. I. I almost. I hesitate to say that. I hesitate to bring this up. But mm-hmm. are you at all surprised that we haven't heard any Chris Sale rumors? Well, he just signed that giant extension, and so did Nolan Arenado. And well, like, yeah. And then he got hurt and pitched sort of poorly. But then so did Corey Kluber. I mean, I like. I hesitate to bring it up because now I've brought it up. Now, <laughs> I. In fact, I take it back. I take it back. I didn't bring it up. That was edited in. Someone took it a thing and edited it in. That's dirty. Oh, we've got great deep fakes on this podcast. I can just simulate Sam's voice saying something about Chris Sale rumors. Huh. Uh yeah. I mean it, it seems like Sale is almost the combination of Corey Kluber and Nolan Arenado, where you would think, well, they would never trade him. He just signed a big extension and he's amazing. And then also, they would never trade him. He's coming off of a down year. You would never get full value out of him. Why would you trade him now? And yet, Kluber actually did get traded. And Arenado somehow is in is in MLB trade rumors. Like, he has posts this year. So yeah. that's why I, I just asked. I'm not saying that I'm surprised because nobody should ever talk about trading Chris Sale. I wondered <laughs> if you were surprised. I mean, they've talked about trading Mookie Betts, so I, yeah. I would not be more surprised to hear that they were interested in trading Chris Sale. Anyway, yeah. yeah. And I guess for the Diamondbacks, good to get Bumgarner also because he had been connected to like almost every other NL West team. I mean, he was rumored to maybe go to the Dodgers, maybe go to the, the Giants, back to the Giants, maybe go to the Padres, and instead the Diamondbacks got him. So extra little victory, I guess, that they don't have to face him a bunch too. Mm-hmm. And for Giants fans, I suppose sort of sad that he stayed in the division and that they have to face him a bunch of times, but at least he didn't go to the Dodgers. That's probably pretty good consolation, is that would have been the nightmare scenario. But you can imagine other scenarios where Bumgarner either stays in San Francisco for a really long time, because they were talking to him about an extension a couple of times, and then injuries intervened when he had his dirt biking accident in 2017, and then the fracture hand in 2018 he might have gotten extended either of those times and then of course if the giants had not had their surge in 2019 it's possible that he would have been traded somewhere else at the deadline but this is the way it worked out and it occurs to me to mention how similar the track records of Cooper and bumgarner were in some respects or at least in terms of 
their overall contributions and significance to their organizations. Of course, Bumgarner was drafted by the Giants. Kluber only pitched in the majors for Cleveland. Baseball reference war-wise, Bumgarner 32.5, Kluber 33.2. Couldn't be closer. Of course, Bumgarner did that in a couple more seasons, and Kluber started later and had the higher peak. So Kluber has the two Cy Young Awards. Bumgarner, of course, has the legendary postseason. But if you look at where those almost identical wars rank in franchise history, and these are obviously two old franchises, Kluber ranks eighth all-time in war by a Cleveland pitcher. Bumgarner ranks eighth all-time by a Giants pitcher. Bumgarner is the best Giants pitcher to debut in terms of career war with this one team. Bumgarner is the best Giants pitcher to debut since Gaylord Perry in 1962, and Kluber is the best Cleveland pitcher to debut since Sam McDowell in 1961. So those are almost perfect parallels, and obviously they will both be missed by the fans who watch them get good. So that's that. And while we're on the subject of Cleveland legends, I want to wish a happy birthday to Eddie Robinson, who turned 99 years old on Sunday. He is the oldest living major leaguer and, of course, was a 1948 World Series winner with Cleveland. He was our guest on an episode last month, episode 1454. Check it out and our best wishes to Eddie. Okay, so what we plan to do today is continuing, I guess, a tradition. We can call it a tradition, although this is only the second year we've done it. But last year, Jeff and I, at the end of the year, we reviewed for each team one story that we had overlooked about that team in 2018, and now we're going to do that for 2019. So we're just looking for something of note that we did not talk about. Could be a fun fact, could be a player, could be a stat, whatever. We talked about as many things as we could this year, but lots of stuff happens that we don't notice or don't have time for. So now we are going to try to make up for that. So I put out a call to the Facebook group as I did last year, and I said, hey, what did we ignore about your team this year? And some people came back with some suggestions for almost every team, at least. So we're going to start off with the National League right now. And I'm just going to go alphabetically by team name. I think. All right. So I loved this episode last year. Yeah. This is my favorite episode that I think I've listened to from the Jeff years so far. Yeah, it was fun. So for the Braves, we got multiple requests to talk about Mike Soroka which uh, is not obscure. He was probably one of the better-known players on the Braves this year. But I think it's true that we didn't really talk about him, especially given how good a season he had. He was, of course, the National League Rookie of the Year runner-up. He had a 2.68 ERA in almost 175 innings, and he finished sixth in Cy Young voting. He was an all-star. And oddly, at the end of the year, he was not the guy who got multiple starts for the Braves. He didn't start their playoff series. You'd think that he would have gotten the ball more often, but he didn't. I don't know why that was, but maybe it is because we snubbed him, and uh, so he didn't get his due. But a couple people had some stats about Mike Soroka in the Facebook group here. I have about 50 tabs open as I look up all of these stories. So... Tommy Long says that Mike Soroka doesn't pitch like most modern pitchers, which may be why we didn't talk about him much. In addition to not having a blazing fastball or striking out a lot of batters, he was top 10 in the following stats among qualified pitchers, ground ball percentage, home run per fly ball percentage, and infield fly ball percentage. Ground ball specialists aren't supposed to be good at the other two, and he sticks out like a sore thumb on those leaderboards. 
Is that true? A ground ball specialist probably they don't allow a lot of fly balls, there, but they're good right, when they th- do. There was there used to be a theory that ground ball pitchers actually were worse on home runs per fly ball because when right. they allowed one in the air, it was on a mistake pitch. And I think that there was some research into this that found that it wasn't that compelling. That um, in fact they they shouldn't be much worse, but but also that they shouldn't be much better. And mm-hmm. the infield fly ball one does feel a little bit feels a little off. It feels incongruous because yeah. um, we we tend to think of getting infield fly balls as a fly ball pitcher's skill Mm -hmm. yes and tommy continues it seems like he is trying to induce weak contact instead of get a swing and miss of the top 30 pitchers in fangrass war he was one of only three who averaged fewer than 15 pitches per inning the other two being kershaw and ryu he also overperformed his peripherals is it possible he is the elusive pitcher who can induce weak contact more often is a player like this likely to continue to outperform his peripherals and uh, that's pretty tough to say based on a single season i think because we've had debates about this type of pitcher who have done that for multiple years and you still kind of question it and so after uh, 175 innings at least this year i don't know probably too soon to say but the fact that he did this in his age 21 season is pretty impressive obviously and and atlanta's had a lot of weird things happen with their rebuild and it hasn't gone completely as planned i wrote about this at the beginning of the playoffs that they kind of came out of it at the time when they were expected to more or less maybe a little later but they did get good but they didn't necessarily get good for the reasons that you sort of thought they would get good or that they were supposed to get good but mike soroka he has panned out, and he is uh, an example. And that Braves pitching staff in the playoffs was very largely not homegrown, I think especially the bullpen. So even though they had a very pitcher-centric rebuild, they don't really have a, a very homegrown-centric pitching staff, or at least they didn't in the playoffs. But Soroka, who was a first-round pick in 2015, he is an exception. He has done quite well. Yeah, I'm sad by the hypothesis that we might not have talked about him because of the way he pitches. I would like to yeah. think that we're better than that. Uh, yeah. it, it does feel like if he were 28, we wouldn't care as much. That if he were 28, we would happily talk about him no matter what sort of stuff he had, if he had the great results. It feels like when you're talking about young pitchers, so much of that is about projection. It's about um, harnessing the uh, the, the sort of... Uh, Uh, excitement in that arm and we love to talk about young pitchers who throw hard because we think they're gonna you know sort of figure out all the nuances and become like reach this new level and with a young pitcher who's already figured out all the nuances I think we get a little less excited about the the future but yeah I mean Soroka was like uh I I don't know if you saw this but um I think Andrew Baggerly gave him uh, his rookie of the year vote and suffered a lot of online abuse for it because he kept Pete Alonso from from being unanimous but you know Soroka had a higher war and mm-hmm. like he was a 21 year old pitcher for much of the season and it, yeah. it it is especially because I have this theory that I think I might write about soon that pitcher war is is undervalued in public conversations relative to how much it's valued by team decisions and so if a, a pitcher has a higher war than a slugging first baseman uh, it might actually be underselling uh, how much better he was and 
I, I wonder if so the thing about Soroka's season is that like there's a first half and a second half and the first half he was he was Ryu like he had a, an ERA of 1.38 through his first 10 starts and then um, after that he was much more normal he had an ERA of three and a half which is good in a high offense era uh, but it's not quite phenomish but his peripherals were actually better in the second half than the first half and I wonder a how much our kind of like lack of feeling that Soroka has like huge momentum going into the rest of his career comes from uh, a sort of shallow misreading of his second half. So yes, Mike Soroka. Yeah, he was really good. And we do have a, a bias, I think, against ground ball pitchers or ground ball pitchers who don't strike out a ton of guys as Soroka didn't for good reason. I mean, generally, it does benefit you to be a strikeout guy. And when people have done studies on ground ball pitchers versus strikeout pitchers, even if you kind of norm for their performance, their their run prevention, I think typically the high strikeout guys tend to have longer careers, which doesn't mean that he couldn't potentially become a higher strikeout guy. But I think that's probably why he didn't get the attention. I mean, if he had gotten that ERA with more impressive strikeout numbers, then I'm sure that we would have been talking about him more. And so we are essentially, I guess, downplaying the idea that he is actually that good, right? Because he he did outperform his peripherals. And unless he is the rare guy who can do that consistently, well, he's maybe not going to have a 2.68 ERA every year, but he could still be a very good pitcher without doing that. And I think he also had pretty dramatic home road splits, which also probably means nothing, but may have gone into the Braves' decision not to start him at the beginning of series in the playoffs. He had a, a 1.55 ERA on the road and a 4.14 at home, obviously probably meaningless, but I don't know if that was behind that decision, but it was sort of strange just to, to see him not getting the ball after the really great season he had, unless it was the, the second half thing and the idea that maybe the wheels were coming off a little bit. That's probably a little strong, but you know what I mean? Yeah, one uh, one of the stories of the last few years league-wide has been that um, a lot of the sinkers have gone away and a lot of the four-seamers have um, have like have gone up and i've i have kind of taken that story to be like sinker ballers as as individuals are in a bad spot because they're being phased out but one of the things that happened that i started noticing this year and soroka is not an example of this uh, he threw four sinker three sinkers for every fastball uh for every four seamer but um but some sinker ball pitchers quit being sinker ball pitchers and they became four seam pitchers and they did just fine like the fact that the leagues is moving away from sinker ballers does not mean they're moving away from those pitchers necessarily. It just means that a lot of those pitchers are moving away from their sinkers. And uh, so it'll be interesting to see if he pitches this way uh, forever. I, I tend to feel like sinker ballers uh, make me nervous because they have to spend so much time out of the strike zone. And it feels like it feels like you have to be perfect to get batters to continually chase that pitch when they know it's coming. Mm -hmm. But uh, it works for some people. It worked for it's worked for a long time for Dallas Keiko. Yep. All right. Brewers. People want us to talk about Corbin Burns. And uh, I don't think oh, we talked yeah. about Corbin Burns this year. So 
Cor- Corbin Birds was a, a very popular breakout pick yeah. for, for 2019. I think I recall, I don't I don't remember who I actually picked, but I, I have to pick a breakout pitcher or player in our staff predictions post every year, and I remember at least thinking about Corbin Burns. And he looked so good in the playoffs in 2018 and, and good in the regular season, too, in a fairly small sample. And then in the 2019 regular season... Oh boy, 32 games, 4 starts, 49 innings. He struck out a ton of guys. He struck yeah. out almost 30% of the hitters he faced. And <laughs> he gave up yeah. 3.1 home runs per 9 innings. That is uh, That translates, oh gosh, and a 414 BABIP. So <laughs> he, he stranded fewer than 60% of, of the runners he allowed on base. So basically everything went wrong that possibly could have gone wrong. And he ended up with an 8.82 ERA to go with a 6.09 FIP and a 3.37 XFIP. So, oh, I got better though. <laughs> ben, I got better for you. Okay. He, he only made two appearances in the majors after the All-Star break because uh-huh. he was in AAA where his ERA... Yeah, what happened there? His ERA was 8.46. Oh, no. Yeah, oh. although, in fairness, he, instead of allowing, in the majors, he allowed 17 homers in 49 innings. In AAA, he only allowed two homers in 22 innings. And that, if you look at his peripherals there, it does seem like uh, the Babbitt monster got him. But huh. uh, still, 8.46 ERA in 22 innings and uh, as a starter, actually. Gosh, man. <laughs> yeah. well, Rivers and- could have used him being good. And, and then, I guess, it looks like he went on the I.L., in july like mid-july to late july with shoulder inflammation which i don't know if that was an actual shoulder thing or whether that was just a homeritis kind of il stint but boy i guess wherever he went the the terrible luck or results pursued him yeah well he um i don't know if you mentioned this in in when he when he was one of your breakout picks if he indeed was but he one of the reasons he was a popular breakout pick uh, is because he is a spin rate monster, right? right like he yeah. has one of the top like three or four spin rates in all of baseball. In fact, I'm looking now of pe- pitchers who threw at least 200 fastballs this year. His spin rate, average spin rate, was the second best, and that is just this is just proof that one metric, no matter how new it is, is <laughs> is not is not like w- there is definitely a feeling when you're writing about baseball that you can sort any column in a spreadsheet and write an article about it Mm -hmm. but you have to be careful what that article is uh, because the name at the top is not always good it it is often a good in fact it is often the case maybe it's not often the case but i'm gonna say it's often the case that a stat that it is good to be or maybe not a stat a description a characteristic that is good to be good in is not necessarily good to be the most extreme in Uh right like for instance to give an example a simplistic example launch angle it is generally thought to be good to have a higher launch angle and so we write profiles of christian yelich because he gets his launch angle higher and if he got it higher still then we probably would write about how that's good and if he got it higher still and still (laughs) and still he'd be at the top of the league but he'd be hitting every pitch backwards and so like the best spin rate in baseball we're not going to talk about i'm almost i have not seen the list of what we're going to talk about i am a hundred percent certain that we have we are not going to be asked to speak 
about Dylan Maples. That's but true. <laughs> Dylan Maples is like if he, I, he's on the top of my list of things to write about, but he can't stay in the majors long enough to get like good video evidence of his existence. <laughs> Dylan Maples has the highest spin rate in baseball in, I think, three pitches. <laughs> and he is... Cubs reliever, by the way. Who... Cubs reliever. Yeah. And he is... Cr- like, if you look at his his stats, uh, they are crazy. They are both crazy impressive in some ways and then just crazy. Like, they're irrational numbers in other ways. And so in 22 career innings in the majors, he has 21 walks, but he has struck out 38. So he strikes out 15 batters per nine. And yet as a 20, I mean, he's a 27 year old with three years of big league experience and he's only accumulated 22 innings despite having a strikeout rate of 15.3 per nine because he walks almost a batter an inning. And if you look in the minors, he's much better in the minors, but he still has those same tendencies. And so Dylan Maples, I keep waiting to come up and be the most interesting pitcher in baseball because of he's at the top of three columns if you sort the spreadsheet Mm -hmm. um but it is not necessarily it's not necessarily good to be that extreme in triple a last year he struck out 75 in 38 innings this year he struck out 79 in 43 innings in triple a but he also walked a batter an inning in triple a so uh corbin burns spin rate monster and it was just yeah it was just absolutely awful just yeah. uh, heartbreakingly bad <laughs> yeah I, I went back and looked he was not my breakout pick <laughs> my breakout pick was Shane Bieber so that worked out pretty well wow. however in my breakout pick text i said if we were picking breakouts by league evidently we only did one for each league i'd agonize over Brandon Woodruff versus Corbin Burns and if we were predicting bounce backs i'd go with John Gray so I guess three of those three four, out of four were good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but Corbin Burns is about as bad as, as you could be. Yeah. So I don't know what to say about that. I mean, that's, it's like, go back and listen to our Edwin Diaz discussion and our complete, you know, perplexedness about what it means when a pitcher strikes out everyone, but also allows home runs left and right. It's, it's hard to figure. I wrote an article a year ago about, uh, well, a little more than a year ago about the Brewers as they were going to the NLCS and about how their strength was their bullpen, as everybody knew. And you, by that point, anybody who was following the playoffs could name like their five good relievers or their six good relievers. And I just looked at the point in the season when each one of those six relievers, other than Josh Hader, was like a complete non-entity. Either he Mm -hmm. was pitching terribly and had lost all leverage uh, opportunities or he was in triple a or he was injured or whatever and within the over the span of five months each of these players went from completely useless in the bullpen to being part of this postseason dominating bullpen and i thought about writing the exact same article this year because the brewers were again in the same spot and it was almost all new names and the players from the previous year were like Corbin Burns and Jeremy Jeffress and Corey Kniebel, uh, but they had they did the same thing with new pitchers and found found good pitchers again. It's uh it's a it is quite the skill and yeah. I don't know I feel like the GMs who are good at it must feel like a lot of us feel if you have imposter syndrome. I bet they're like this is amazing and I don't know how I'm doing it. Like I don't know what to do. <laughs> I don't know why it worked once. Everybody's going to see right through me. They just must feel constantly like today is the day they are exposed. Mm-hmm. Kyle Lobner in the Facebook group mentioned that the Brewers used 1010 players off the bench. That's combining pitchers and position players. Wait, 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 wait. In history, 
no this this year 1010 so, yeah so like games okay, yeah. games for <laughs> batters off the bench and relievers i think which is the third most in mlb history behind the 2018 dodgers at 1065 and the 2007 nationals 1030 which is odd because uh, you wouldn't think that would have happened back in 2007 because teams weren't using quite as many relievers back then and maybe there wasn't quite as much positional versatility i don't know but anyway 2007 nationals did it those are the the only three teams with a thousand or more all right cardinals we got multiple requests to talk about tommy edmund and I, I felt like we must have talked about Tommy Edmund at some point, but I think maybe I was just thinking of the Ringer podcast and Ringer Slack where Tommy Edmund was a frequent topic of discussion because former Ringer editor who just departed, Donnie Kwok, is Tommy Edmund's cousin. And so he was tracking Tommy Edmund all season long and asking us, is Tommy Edmund going to be good? And he wrote about Tommy Edmund and he went on the podcast to talk about Tommy Edmund. And he asked me, like, for a scouting report on Tommy Edmund at some point, I think, when he first came up. And, you know, I didn't know much about Tommy Edmund, so I was cribbing from other people and asking prospect-type people about him. And they sort of, even then, even when he made the majors, kind of downplayed his potential and said, well, he doesn't seem like he has a lot of power and doesn't seem like there's a great path to playing time in the short term. And then Tommy Edmund ended up being absolutely indispensable for yeah. the Cardinals this year. And he played 92 games. He had a 123 WRC plus. He was worth three war. He was basically a, a starter by the end. I mean, he was playing in the postseason every day. He was great. It's just like the classic Cardinals kind of player, I guess. I mean, he was drafted in the sixth round in 2016. So classic Cardinals player would be like 12th round or something, but still pretty good. He was actually signed by former baseball prospectus prospect person, Zach Mortimer, by the way, whom we both overlapped with and worked with at BP. He became a Cardinal scout after that. So Edmund was never like a top ranked prospect or anything. And at age 24, he came up and had a, a heck of a rookie season. Yeah, I love Tommy Edmund. I um, wrote about him briefly a couple of times for playoff previews or playoff type pieces. And uh, one of the one of the fun fact one of the great fun facts of this year, I think, is that Tommy Edmund on a per game appearance uh, was as valuable as Jordan Alvarez, who, yeah. uh, of course, had one of the most historically great per you know per game or rate stat seasons of all time and Edmund you know it's based partly on defense which we are a little more skeptical of in small samples but Edmund is a from what I saw he was a fantastic defender uh, at third base especially but also good at second base he's he's quite fast he's a uh, you know he was a good base runner and uh, yeah I mean every year every year they have one every (laughs) single year they have one and you never (laughs) have any idea who it's going to be um and if you were try, if you were to try to guess you would constantly cheat and go too high on the prospect list (laughs) Mm -hmm. you would constantly like you'd have to pick the non-prospect who's going to be cardinal devil magic this year and you would sort of like fudge and pick like the number eight guy thinking there's no way i can pick the number 17 guy and it's always the number 17 guy Yep. And they get one every year. I, I promise you, you could go every year for like yeah. the last eight and find the guy. It certainly seems that way. Yeah. I'm looking. Let's see. He was on the Fangraphs top 40 prospects for the Cardinals last November. He was at number 20. 
So, yeah, he was way down there, and he played, let's see, he played a bunch of positions. He played second, he played third, he played right, he played center, he played left. I guess he's going to have to do that again, because just glancing at the Cardinals' depth chart right now, at Fangraphs at least, he's not the top player at any position, but he is a player at four positions it looks like so he's probably going to be like a a good i don't know who's a comp for him he's just as you said it seems like there's just always a a cardinals player like this who just looks so polished and (laughs) just plays a bunch of positions and i don't know if he will be a starter it seems like he could certainly be a starter if he had a spot to be but he's kind of stuck behind colton wong and and paul de young right now but well no i mean he's at third right yeah, I get. Well, that's yeah. what I, I mean. He was carpenter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I right. mean, he was so uh, unlike Jordan Alvarez too. And, uh, this is obviously not a knock on Alvarez in any way, but unlike Alvarez, Edmonds wore like the replacement in replacement when rins above replacement was very true for Edmund. Like he was replacing. He came in and was a pinch hitter for a little bit and a bench guy for a little bit, and then Matt Carpenter got hurt and mm-hmm. had been you know really bad for a while. So Matt Carpenter got hurt. And Edmonds was a starting third baseman for quite some time. And then Carpenter came back and Edmund kept the job, which is probably right because Carpenter was not a Carpenter was not a ball player this year. And then Colton Wong got hurt and then he slid mm-hmm. over and played second base when Colton Wong got hurt. And so he was really necessary. I, I, I have a hunch that the Astros would have figured out a way to fill DH if they hadn't had Jordan Alvarez. Mm-hmm. The Cardinals wouldn't have made the playoffs, though, if not for, for Tommy Edmund. Yeah. Um, and so I assume he'll play third base next year. I, I don't think unless Matt Carpenter shows up and it was like. You know, it, it turns out that he had a bad shoulder all year and he got mm-hmm. something cleaned up over the offseason and he's back. Uh, I think it's Edmund's job to lose right now. Yeah, let's see. Raster Resource actually has Carpenter listed as the starter at third and Edmund as the starter in left field. But who knows? That's probably going to be a, a spring training decision. So we'll see. Yeah, yeah. All right. Cubs. This is a good one. Robel Dylan Garcia. Maples. <laughs> yeah. Well, we covered that. So Robel Garcia who yeah. I'm, I'm surprised we didn't talk about, but we I'm pretty were sure asked we didn't. about him. Didn't we were we? asked about him. Yeah, and, we were. And then, and then he went avocado on us. <laughs> yes, right. Yeah, I mean, I didn't know much. It, someone asked us, like, what's the deal with this guy? Where did he come from, I, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I didn't know. Yeah. So it's a wild story. And a lot of these, like, end of season fun facts end up being like, this guy came out of nowhere. He was playing in a place he didn't even know there was a league. He was a bartender. And now he is in the major leagues. And Robel Garcia is uh, sort of like that. So he, how old was he this year? Is it 25 or something like that? Uh, 26. Okay. So he was in Cleveland system years and years ago. He never made it above A ball, I believe, or, or high A. And he washed out of there, released on his birthday, no less. So he's from the Dominican originally, but after he got cut by Cleveland, he moved to Italy because his wife, I think, had grown up in Italy. And so he went to join her and their kids, and he became a dual citizen. And he started playing for Italian independent league teams, and uh, he did that for a while, and then he made it onto Team Italy, and 
he wasn't supposed to make the trip with Team Italy to the Instructional League. So Team Italy went to Instructs and and played against uh, minor leaguers in the U.S. And he was not supposed to be on that team because he was too old and they wanted to send younger guys. But then one of the younger guys who was supposed to make the trip... He hurt himself. He uh, hurt himself sliding, broke something, I think. And then they added Rabel Garcia to the roster, and he was spotted there by a Cub scout because the Cubs, I think the, the Reds Instructional League team was playing in Arizona against Team Italy. This was last October, and a Cub scout, area scout Gabe Zappin, was watching the game, and I'm I'm reading from a Chicago Tribune article here, and he said, I just felt like I'm going to make that phone call, and they'll be like, hey, man, this kid's 25 years old, and he's been out of the country for five years. Like, why are you calling? So he almost didn't call. He was almost too sheepish to say that he had spotted this player, but he saw him make a big league-looking play on defense, and then he hit a home run on a 97-mile-per-hour fastball, and he said, well, I've got to say something. And he did. So the Cubs offered Rebel Garcia a minor league deal, and he mashed in double yeah. A and triple A. He slugged like 590 ish at, at both levels, and he did eventually get a call up to the Cubs. And he struck out a whole lot. (laughs) That was kind of his problem with Cleveland in the minors is that he struck out like 30% of the time, even in the low minors, which is generally not a good sign. And so when he was with the, the Cubs this year, he did show some power and he hit five home runs and I think he hit one that was like a 454 foot home run. So he clearly has power. He hit five homers and 72 at bats. But in those 72 at-bats, he struck out 35 times. That's that's not so good. And uh, I believe when the Cubs acquired Nick Castellanos, they sent him down, and then he came back up in September and kept striking out a whole lot. And uh, he has also not hit in the Dominican Winter League recently. So I don't know what the future holds for Robel Garcia, but the fact that he had this odyssey and came back from overseas six years after he was last playing in the minors in the u.s it's a a pretty amazing story yeah i mean i just can't i can't even imagine what it must have looked like to see him playing against the italian baseball league i i am i mean that's a league that tommy lyons could have probably played in right yeah from the stompers yeah and and uh and maybe did we (laughs) i'll ask tommy and this is a player who hit you know like a major leaguer yeah. <laughs> a year later it, it i mean it must have been crazy and looked weird but on the other hand i bet it didn't i bet he looked like no better than matt chavez looked against us in the stomper season well that um was, that was pretty incredible but yeah it was right <laughs> and i bet you his so garcia is I don't know if Garcia might be the only major leaguer i don't know we'll call him a major leaguer for now the only active major leaguer who has professional stats that are not on baseball reference because mm. pretty much every league now is in baseball reference in plus college and plus winter leagues but i mean even putting aside college and winter leagues if you just look at where players played from april to september as professionals before making the majors i don't know if there's a league out there that is represented in the majors that isn't on baseball reference other than the Italian Baseball League. Mm-hmm. And so he is a unicorn. And also, here's the other thing about him. So he, like you say, he mashes in the minors. 
and he comes up and he mashes in the majors. And so through his first 15 games, he's hitting 279, 319, 698, which is mm-hmm. a, an OPS of 1,000, o- yep. over 1,000. So he's got an OPS over 1,000. How long of a leash does that buy you when you just got signed out of the Italian Baseball League? <laughs> Even with months of crushing double and triple A, how long a leash does that get you? It gets you one, uh, four games, including three starts. Four games later, his OPS was down to 779. He went 0 for 1, 0 for 5, 1 for 5, 0 for 5. They sent him down to the minors with that. So he went from 1,000 OPS, legit phenom, like you could, he was as good at that point as Jeff Francoeur was when he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated. He could, <laughs> you could have, if you were a writer for Sports Illustrated, you could very easily have pitched that to your editor and been on a plane. And by the time you figured out where your hotel was, he would have been in the minors. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know who was sent down when he was called up? Chris Bryant for service time <laughs> reasons. <laughs> Dylan Maples. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> yeah. And in his first at bat, he pinch hit and he struck out against Dobidas Nebraskas. Speaking of players with unusual backgrounds and, and European baseball experience, I'm looking at Rebel Garcia's baseball reference bullpen page, and it has some of his stats here from the Italian Baseball League. In 2017, he hit. 274, 360, 521. Oh, I'm in, so disappointed. In 24 regular season games. And then in 2018, he hit 281, 343, 490. Oh, get out of here. <laughs> I don't know. What if, is wrong with this sport? <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm disappointed or, or happy about this. Oh. It's, it's even weirder that he wasn't like demolishing that league. It really makes a compelling point that they're doing baseball really wrong by separating all the good players into leagues. You know, like instead of having hierarchical leagues, there should everybody should just be constantly shuffling and uh, Mike Trout should be playing sometimes against the best pitcher in the world and sometimes against the 4,000th best. Like you, there should be so much more intermingling of talent levels, I think. (laughs) And this is proof. Yeah. It'd be fun for us. Yeah. Anyway, oh my goodness, major one of the, league hitter in Italy. Yeah, what, what, oh. <laughs> one of the wildest stories of any major leaguer in 2019. So yeah, pretty great. And I believe he just got totally destroyed by like off-speed pitches or breaking balls or something. Like he just couldn't hit them, which isn't that surprising, I guess, given his uh, background. But I think he was seeing a lot of those and was not doing a great job of laying off. So not sure if that's a correctable flaw, but regardless, he made it. So In a 26-man roster, if he hits 208, 275, 500 for the rest of his career— is there room for him on 26-man rosters? Well, he plays like all the infield positions, right? I think he played yeah. short, second, yeah. third. So, yeah. yeah, I guess, maybe. If he's good at playing those things. I, I don't know if he's actually that good a defender, though. But still. Yeah, he only played second for the Cubs, second uh-huh. in the corner outfield spots. Okay, yeah, all right. Maybe in the minors he had. Okay, so... Uh-huh. Diamondbacks, we didn't really get a a Diamondback suggestion or not a a good one. I guess uh, we talked about Madison Bumgarner. That was a story. (laughs) He signed with the Diamondbacks. Didn't talk about that this year until today. But (laughs) (laughs) that's uh, that's kind of cheating. So I don't know. I yeah, I think well, one of my um, very favorite phenomena in baseball is when you trade 
your expensive player yeah. for the young player, and then the young player immediately is better than the expensive player. Mm-hmm. And that that's kind of what happened with the Paul Goldschmidt trade. And I'm not yep. saying, like, I mean, Carson Kelly, who was uh, the catcher who came over and was half of the trade uh, return, was a 24-year-old catcher who hit basically as, I mean, so he hit, he had a 348 slugging percentage, uh, 348 on base. Paul Goldschmidt had a 346 on base. Carson Kelly had a 478 slugging percentage. Paul Goldschmidt had a 476 slugging percentage. That's two points on each uh, on uh, difference on each of those. And Kelly was to the better. Now he had a slightly better home ballpark, but he's also a catcher. He's 24. He was not gotten this year because he thought the Diamondbacks thought they were going to get better this year with Carson Kelly. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm not like the Cardinals might be perfectly happy with that trade. They might probably would have thought, well, Carson Kelly, we, you know, we didn't have a plan to get him to do that. Um, and uh, so maybe they're not regretting it, but I, I just love that you get these trades that happen and you're so used to analyzing them in the same way every time, which is one team's trying to get better now. And one team's trying to get better for the future and there's not really much you can say besides the team that was trying to get better now did and the team that was trying to get better for the future did and in nine years maybe we'll be able to sort out whether each team is happy with with how its priorities played out and a trade like this where the future guy is better than the now guy now just makes it so much more interesting it makes Mm -hmm. you remember that everybody's playing on two tracks two time tracks all the time and even the future teams are also playing now they keep playing games and uh so i was i was delighted midway through the season kelly was was well ahead of goldschmidt and there was a day when the diamondbacks passed the cardinals playoff odds there was one day and one day only and that was basically the day that the cardinals turned everything around and got really good but for one day the diamondbacks were ahead of them and if you looked at that point carson kelly had like i don't know 3.7 war and paul goldschmidt had like 1.1 and you just sort of laughed at it mm-hmm. um so i don't know i hope they both win because i like paul goldschmidt so i hope they're both happy with it ultimately but i personally enjoyed the way that this played out this year yeah yeah that was good too bad you already used your your tim lacastro fun fact yeah we <laughs> talked about him that a lot been a this year good place to do that yeah, and I mean, by the way, Luke Weaver was also very good for the Diamondbacks. He was the other half of that. So that trade was, if if the Diamondbacks had made this trade with the Pirates, we would be dunking on it so much more <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, because this was an immediately lopsided trade that it didn't even go in the direction that the Cardinals uh, thought it was going to go, yeah. uh, let alone to, uh, to the margins that they thought they were going to get. Right, yeah. Someone asked Mike Farron on Twitter what we should talk about for the Diamondbacks, and he said we should mention Alex Young, who is a former second-rounder who was left off the 40-man and ended up being a very good starter this year. For a guy with below-average velocity, he had strong ground ball and swinging strike numbers. So there you go. Shout-out to Alex Young. Here's something I want to talk about for the Diamondbacks. Mm-hmm. So Mike Farron does these interviews with players, and one um, one half inning on each radio broadcast, they don't go to commercial. The whole commercial is is Mike's interview with the player. Mm-hmm. It's like called like Get to Know a Diamondback or something like that. And I, I think it's probably sponsored by like a you know escrow company. So the, it is a commercial, but it's not really a commercial. And and Mike just does this these interviews like Get to Know You interviews, and they're all so good Mm. they're really good they're like three questions 
and they're like about their favorite video game and they're all done really well and i always look forward to that inning in the game Mm -hmm. all right yeah love mike okay Dodgers. So we talked a ton about the Dodgers this we year. We did talk a ton about the Dodgers <laughs> yeah. this year. I was thinking about that <laughs> yeah. because I was trying to decide what we, I, before I realized this was going to be this episode, I thought I had to bring a, a topic and I was thinking about things and I kept thinking about Dodgers topics and I thought we have talked about them a lot yeah. <laughs> and you and Meg also talked about them a lot. The episodes I listened to was a lot of Dodgers stuff. They mm-hmm. were an interesting team, but, but it is true that we talked about the Dodgers a lot. Yeah, so I don't know if there's much that uh, that we didn't discuss because I think we only got one Dodgers suggestion here from a listener named Eric who says, two potential breakout guys debuted for the Dodgers this year, Edwin Rios and Kyle Garlick, two high-exit velo guys who dominated the minors and saw brief time this year. So this kind of got lost, I think, amid all of the other great Dodgers who debuted this year. So uh, we certainly... Yeah, I'm, we, I'm hearing Edwin Rios' name for the first time. Yeah, I mean, we talked about, uh, let's see, we talked about Dustin May, and we talked about Tony Gonsolin. We talked, well, uh, of course, we talked about some of the, I mean, we talked about Matt Beatty, I think he probably yeah. came up at some point. Obviously, sure. Gavin Lux came up. Will, Will Smith, Will was, Smith a big, yes. was a big part of the season. I mean, they debuted. They had that. They had that. <laughs> it seems like. right. They had that run of walk off. We talked about the the walk off run. Yes, you know, right. three walk offs by three rookies yep. in a in a three game series. Yep. Talked a lot of touchers. So the ones that we didn't talk about, I guess, were Edwin Rios and Kyle Garlick. So. Edwin Rios, he got into 28 games for the Dodgers this year, and he had a 1,010 OPS. That's a, a 162 OPS plus. He was uh, 25 years old. He plays the infield corners, and uh, let's see how he did in the minors this year. He was uh, quite good. I mean, it's uh, everyone hit well in AAA, especially in the PCL, but he had a, a 915 OPS there. Wasn't like a top prospect guy, but uh, but he obviously made good. And then Car- Kyle Garlick, Kyle Garlick had a, an 8.42 OPS in 30 games, so he was pretty good too. I don't even know where the Dodgers found room and playing time for yeah. all of these excellent rookies. <laughs> I don't know how they had him. I don't know how they managed to keep them on their 40 all these years. Because yeah. like Garlick's 27, and yeah. he made his major league debut this year, and he's a 28th round pick. He must have been exposed to all these Rule 5 drafts the yeah. last couple of years, right? Garlic had a 1,057 OPS in AAA with 23 dingers in 81 games. So, yeah, it's just uh, it's just good good hitters all the way down with them, I guess. And he played outfield corners, so outfield corner guy, infield corner guy, neither one a, a top prospect blue chipper or anything and i don't know how they'll continue to find playing time with this roster so stacked but yeah they just had so many good rookies who hit well that i don't think we ever mentioned their names if we ever noticed them and garlic was a a 28th round pick in 2015 humble origins and rios was a sixth round pick that same year you know if you put something tasty on the hood of your automobile guile carlick <laughs> yeah, okay, pretty good. It's okay. All right. All right. Yeah. yeah anyway, yeah. Kyle Garlic. Yeah. Wow. Yep. Okay. Giants. So everyone wanted us to talk about Mike Yastrzemski. My my wife just learned that spoonerism is a word. 
Oh yeah. Oh, well. Yeah, she was she was she was very amused. She thought I had she thought I had invented it at first. <laughs> no, Grant Brisbee invented it, I think. Uh so Mike Yastrzemski was a, a very common request. We did talk about Mike Yastrzemski when he hit the home run in Fenway Park, which was uh, obviously a really cool moment. But I don't know if we ever talked about his season as a whole, and it was a, a pretty good one, especially because they picked him up for nothing, basically, yeah. from the Orioles in March. They uh, they traded Tyler Herb to the Orioles on March 23rd for Mike Yastrzemski. Tyler Herb is uh, a 27-year-old pitcher, I believe, who uh, was in AAA and, and got knocked around in AAA this year. So, I don't know. Maybe Tyler Herb will make good someday, but he's a 29th-round pick, and... I don't think anyone particularly noticed when Mike Yastrzemski was picked up because uh, he was uh, a 14th rounder, and that was the third time that he was drafted. So obviously you know the name, but uh, he was 28 years old when he debuted. He's 29 now, and he was one of the Giants' best players, which is not saying much because as I was looking up Mike Yastrzemski, I noticed another fact about the Giants, which I guess is not a fun fact, but we never said these had to be fun the Giants were the only team this year that did not have a three win player according to baseball reference which uh there were worse teams than the Giants this year but there were no teams that did not have at least one player better than the Giants best player according to baseball reference war which uh I think that makes a season less fun for uh, fans, I mean, if you have all else being equal or even not being equal, even if you have more wins than another team, it's nice when you have a really standout season that you can follow and take some pleasure in. And I, I guess that was Mike Yastrzemski for Giants fans, or maybe it was Jeff Samarja, who was uh, pretty decent, somewhat surprisingly, too. But someone else noted in our Facebook group that he doesn't think Farhan Saidi got enough credit for giving the Giants a momentary shot at contention and obviously we talked about that at the time because it affected their trade deadline plans but Farhan I guess in season added Alex Dickerson and Mike Yastrzemski and Steven Vogt and Donovan Solano and all of those guys were picked up for more or less nothing and uh, they all contributed fluky as it may have been so that was weird and fun when that happened. The Giants were, were really unbeatable for, for a while there. Yeah. Uh, Yastrzemski out-hit uh, Ronald Acuna. Uh, did he? By, by OPS by OPS Plus. By o, he had a really? higher OPS Plus. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> for real. Huh. Yeah. Yastrzemski had a 123. Acuna didn't have better than a 123. 122, dude. Wow. <laughs> Huh. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's yeah. probably the last time we'll be able to say that, but huh. All right then. And uh someone also said that we should mention that Pablo Sandoval had a good year, which uh he did. Yeah, I guess. That's wild. It was only like three hundred plate appearances, but he had a one fourteen OPS plus. He was still very much worth employing as a major league baseball mm -hmm. player. All right. Yeah. I begged for a Marlins fun fact, and I didn't get one. I put out the call, just generic, give me a, a fact about every team. Then I noticed that we didn't get a Marlins one, and I said, Marlins, anyone, please, someone give me a Marlins one. No one did. So, uh... <laughs> Well, I am I, fascinated by the fact that Don Mattingly is still the manager, <laughs> and I think that it's, it's a weird... I, 
I don't know if there's another example of um, of a situation where the more a manager or a you know a baseball competitor loses, in a way, the more respect you have for him or that you must have for him, it because he has now he's going to manage his fifth year on the Marlins, and you you would be hard pressed to explain what. <laughs> uh what his style is why him yeah why like he's not famous for anything in particular and every year the marlins get worse <laughs> and so they won 79 games the first year then 77 then 63 then 57 and keep in mind it's not like he came to the marlins as like some legend legendary <laughs> <Right>. manager <laughs> he got fired by the dodgers right and yet they they have kept him around yeah. through this process and and so it makes you the by far the most important reason that a manager is employed by his team is something you don't know like it is it is something about his the way that he, the, the way that he is to work with what he can convince you of in one-on-one -on -one meetings what you see of him reflected in the people who um, play for him and so despite all of this there is something about him that gives the Marlins total confidence that they've got the right guy. <laughs> and uh, and also, he just does it. Like, he just keeps managing there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's it's also like, you know, it's probably not like he needs the money. He's done Mattingly, and he certainly doesn't need fame or anything. Again, I bet he could make he's done I Mattingly. bet he could make more. I would not be surprised if he could make more as a media personality than as yeah. the manager of the Marlins. He can't make or more than what? On the $850,000 a year or something in <laughs> yeah. the Marlins. He's got to be the lowest paid, one of the lowest paid, if not the lowest paid manager in baseball, right? Didn't Just he, on, I think he on, a, yeah. on it being the Marlins. Right. Didn't he? I think he uh, maybe took a pay cut to come back this year because I think we actually talked about that. Yeah, because Ken Rosenthal wrote about that and we talked about, well, what will managers make oh. in this landscape where, you know, a lot of the times they're, they're just kind of doing what the front office tells them to do. And yeah, so Mattingly, he two point eight million. He had been making wow. He had been the sixth highest paid manager wow, yeah. in baseball. Probably just because he's Don Mattingly, and uh, you know you have to give Don Mattingly a good salary, I guess, to get him to manage. Except maybe you don't because he had. So wait, so he just got a two year deal in September. He got a, a two year extension, and yeah. according to Ken. His salaries will be in the $2 million range and possibly below. So I don't know where that ranks. But yeah, so he took a pay cut. So he likes managing the Marlins enough <laughs> to take a pay cut, even though he's done Mattingly, even though he's been there for years. He said, yeah, I want to I want to keep doing this. I want to see it through. I guess I, maybe that's it. Maybe he just really wants to come out the other end of this thing and show that he can win with the Marlins. I don't know. All right. So now I... I I am serious about what I was saying. So imagine that somebody with the time machine comes back from five years from now, and you're like, so what's the world like in five years? And they're telling you some things, and then they're like, Don Mattingly still the manager of the Marlins. And you're like, oh, no kidding. How, how are things going for the Marlins? So I'm going to give you two scenarios, all right? The time traveler goes, uh, well, you know, not great. They've had some some tough years and some okay years. And you say, oh, how many wins have they had in, in each of the years since then? All right. And, it, and the time traveler says, well, 62, 67, 72, 79, 74. Okay, that's one, one okay. option. Or the time traveler says they won 51 and then 42 and then 33 
and then 16, and then four. <laughs> now, which one would you think Don Mattingly must be an incredible manager? It's not the first one. It might be the second one, though. You might, you might actually think, wow, he, he's employed after winning 16 <laughs> games? Yeah, wow. Yeah, it's really... And he's, he's not young, so Ken mentions that uh, he will become the game's eighth oldest manager, once Bruce Brochi retires, so, huh. and Ken says he likely would have found it difficult to land another of the major league jobs, and uh, I, I don't know, so the Marlins love him, evidently, but Ken's saying maybe he would have had a tar- hard time making someone else love him. So, I don't know. It says Mattingly's quoted in here just saying, like, talking to Jeter, knowing that he wanted me here. He felt I was the right guy for the job. So, maybe this is just like a, a Yankee Bond kind of thing. I don't know. Maybe uh, Mattingly was nice to Jeter when Jeter was a rookie in spring training or something like that. And now he's paying it forward. I don't know. Granted, the Marlins went through a teardown, total rebuild, sort of a slash and burn thing. So since that was initiated by ownership in the front office, you couldn't really hold him responsible for it. His Yankee buddy, his former teammate, came in and took over, and that had to help. But yeah, you you probably would have a hard time finding many managers in history who have not only kept their job during a a progression of losing more and more games for this number of years, but then also signed a two-year extension at the end of that sequence. Yeah. 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 I mean, he doesn't have the same sequence that Ron Gardner had, but uh, Aaron Gleeman wrote an article, uh, not an article, the the Twins chapter in the Baseball Prospectus Annual for the 2015 season. And I forget exactly what the fact was, but uh, Gardenhire had had four straight 90 loss seasons. I, I, might, I, I might have my years. Right. I think Gardenhire had three straight 95 loss seasons, and I think no manager had ever been employed for more than one more year after that or something like that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it, 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 none of the details matter. Gardenhire got fired a year later anyway, and all my numbers are jumbled. But yes, to, to your point, the scarcity of managers surviving under conditions like those that Don Mattingly has been in is about what you think it is. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So, By the way, do you think Derek Jeter would like to manage, or do you think he thinks it's beneath him? Like, yeah. Do you think that he's thinking... I ought to just manage. This is stupid. Why don't I? I would be obviously be the best manager. Why don't I just go manage? Or do you think he thinks like he's in the ownership class now and people who get paychecks are like uh, different? Yeah, I think he skipped a step and I think he's happy to have skipped it. I think he, he always had an ambition to be an owner, to be the face of an organization in a different way. I don't think he wants to go back to traveling around and wearing a uniform and all that. Yeah. He's Derek Jeter. Yeah. So. I I do kind of wonder if he would like to wear the uniform as the owner. Like, if it were a better team, like, if he were the Yankees owner, it would not surprise me if he wore the uniform just around. It wouldn't really make any less sense than managers wearing uniforms. (laughs) No, it's true. All right, Mets. So some people suggested that we discuss J.D. Davis, an example of a move the Mets made that worked out really well. They traded for him in January, and he was great. Sort of stole him from the Astros, for whom he had not hit at all in 2018. Then he had a 138 OPS plus in New York. But we've got to talk about Dominic Smith. So this is the second consecutive season, I think, that we have had a notable player break out after... He is diagnosed with sleep apnea, 
and started using a CPAP mask. So that was the story of Josh James the previous season, right? He kind of came out of nowhere and suddenly he was throwing 100 and he was so promising and it turned out that it was like his minor league roommate said that he was not sleeping and so he got a, a CPAP mask and suddenly he was Josh James. Same thing happened to Dominic Smith essentially this season. So he said it's a, a game changer. They told him when he started using the mask that it was a 14% difference in reaction time, which he says was equivalent to a pitcher throwing 95, and he's seeing it 103. Now when he sees a guy throw hard, I don't want to say I'm seeing it in slow motion, but I can see it and react to it in a way that I couldn't in the past. So to him, he was thinking that guys were throwing 88 to 90, and then he looked up and they were throwing 94 to 95, and it was because he actually got a good night's sleep. So... The Mets medical and performance staff wanted him to look into that over the offseason, but there was something with a change in insurance because he was like a minor leaguer going to the majors and that didn't happen. But once he showed up in camp, they made him do it and they had him tested and got the mask and he was really good. He had a, what, 133 WRC plus, I think I saw in a you know 200 plate appearances or something because then he had a fracture and he missed most of the second half of the season. But then he came back in game 162, last game of the season, yeah. and he totally. hit a walk-off home run in a Incredible. in a, a three-run comeback in the bottom of the ninth to, to end the and midseason. You, so so impressive. Like, that is, to me, the most impressive single physical act that a baseball player did this year because he did not—there was no rehab outing. You know, the, the minor leagues were all done. He didn't True, get yeah. to bat. Huh. For, he didn't get to bat for two months. And then he comes up as the pinch hitter. I mean, you already have, there's already a major pinch hitting penalty for batters, just normal ones who were playing every day. He comes up in the 11th inning. He had to wait two extra innings to get his chance. His first at bat in two months against any speed of pitching, and he hits a home run. Yeah. I can't imagine how your brain can do that. That is incredible. Well, he got a good night's sleep. That was all it took. He did. <laughs> Honestly, like I didn't. I I believe I did not know that he had yeah. the sleep apnea mask. I totally believe that it is. I believe that not sleeping. Well, I guess I believe that sleeping is a superpower, and I have a friend who has the mask, and when he got the mask, it was like a coloring book that someone finally colored. Yeah. Like, he was so bleak as, like, a human, and then he gets this sleep mask, and he's still, like, got his faults, but <laughs> <laughs> but it is, like, it is incredible what not sleeping does, and I yeah. thought that sleep apnea was just, like, eh, you're uncomfortable, maybe you woke up in the middle of the night. But he tells me it's not that at all, that like you just, you never, ever, ever get a good night's sleep. You don't know that you're not getting a good night's sleep. You yeah. just simply wake up feeling terrible. That's the amazing thing. Yeah, he says, I'm reading a, a post article from March, and he said he forgot to wear it one night, and then he struggled the next day, and then he set a reminder on his phone in case he ever does fall asleep without the mask on to wake him up because it, he says, I feel like a new man. And it's like... He said that, you know, he couldn't even focus. He couldn't comprehend what people were saying to him. He wanted to take a test for ADHD because he couldn't focus. He was tired. He was groggy. And he thought it was normal. He just didn't know. Like, this is not how people are supposed to feel. So it's it's kind of incredible that he managed to get as far as he did and, and be a prospect 
given that he was just sleepwalking through every game yeah. and he didn't even know yeah. it. So it makes you wonder like how many other players are, are out there and just people in general in life. So, you know, everyone should, I guess, get tested for this if they're tired. <laughs> could be could be the next Josh James or Tom mm. Smith. All right. And then last one for today. We're only going to get through 10 because these take a while. <laughs> so Nationals, many people mentioned that we should talk about Aaron Barrett. So we didn't talk a whole lot about the Nationals bullpen for positive reasons this year, but Aaron Barrett was a, a really nice story. So he's a, another one of these guys who came back from things that you wouldn't expect someone to be able to come back from. So he was on the Nationals as a reliever 2014 to 2015. Then he had Tommy John surgery in 2015. Then he came back from that, and this is like uncomfortable even to read. So if you don't want to hear about a gruesome injury, you can check out now. But I'm quoting from Barrett here. On one pitch, a four-seam fastball as I was accelerating my arm forward, my humerus bone snapped in half. It was a clean break, hands down the most excruciating thing I've ever gone through. I blacked mm. out and went into shock. Witnesses reported hearing a gunshot. It was that loud. Many teammates couldn't handle the sight. Barrett's doctors thought he had been in a car accident. Oh Dr. Dr. James Andrews said he had never quite seen an injury like it. You just don't break your bone like that throwing a baseball, Barrett said. Some pitchers, of course, have broken bones, but I guess not in quite this way. It took two plates and 16 screws, but doctors repaired his arm again. He described it as a miracle surgery. His surgeons just wanted his arm to function again. They told him ever pitching again was a long shot at best. And then he got back to the big leagues this year. And uh, four years after he had been on a big league mound, two surgeries, he came back. He pitched a, a good inning. He struck out Ronald Acuna, which is why Ronald Acuna did not have a better OPS plus than Mike Yastrzemski. And then he uh, he started crying, it looked like, as he went back to the dugout. And there's a, a video that MLB's Twitter account tweeted of him just sobbing in the dugout with his head down and Davey Martinez comes over and like puts a towel over his head and Barrett takes it off and puts it around his neck. It's okay. There's there's crying in baseball. It's all right. And uh, after that, <laughs> things things didn't go so well because uh, Barrett's next outing, I think he he threw a third of an inning and gave up three runs, and then he gave up a run in his next outing too, and he ended up with an ugly ERA on the season. However, he got a World Series ring, I assume. So. That is pretty cool because he's been in the Nationals organization for a, a very long time. He was drafted by them in 2010. So a lot of the players on that team have been around him, know him, have uh, played with him before. And I'm sure they were all thrilled for him. So just imagine coming back from what happened to him, not only physically, but psychologically. Having that happen to your arm on a routine pitch and then having to keep pitching anyway, not knowing if it could happen again. Just a pretty cool. Yeah, comeback. I mean, there's a that, it was very good. There were there are a lot of reasons that I think were jealous of professional athletes. Um, you know, there's the money and there's the fame and there's the fact that they for a living get to do this thing that we had you know that associate with fun but i think an underrated one that is maybe um in in the back of our minds all the time is that we just see these players 
who get to care so much about their jobs. And even if you love your job, you will just never have a day where you care about it the way that you have to sob in the middle of it, just out of happiness, just out of caring, <laughs> yeah. just out of emotion that you're doing it. I mean, you have good days, yeah. you have bad days, you have great days, but you never have a day where someone comes over and puts a towel around you because you're sobbing with joy that you <laughs> did your job. And, I mean, yeah. obviously most players do not have to have the comeback that Aaron Barrett did, but the emotion that they that they do their job with, that they I said that they play the game with, no, it's that they do their job with is, in a, in a lot of ways, what you're watching. And um, uh, it's it's a, it's quite a thing that we're, we, we get to watch. We get to watch them care. And really, I do think that like a, a, a huge part of the work that we do in our lives, we do work, not work employment work, but work like the self-work is we work to make ourselves care about things because we want to care about them. We want to have strong feelings about things in the world and we want to have emotions. And so we we do it takes a lot of work to care. And for for professional ballplayers, it doesn't. It just comes to them every day. Mm hmm. All right, so we will end there. We've gotten through the first third, and we will get to the rest a little later on. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Perish the Sun, Alex Stanford, Sean, Scott Kramer, and Gordon Kristen. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectivelywild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Please keep your questions and comments for me and Sam and Meg coming via email at podcastofpangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you're already a supporter. We will be back with another episode, as always, a little later this week. So we will talk to you then. Well, it's true, so true. I didn't do right by you. Guess I didn't know exactly what to do. Someday I'll make it all up to you Well, it's true, so true I didn't do right by you Guess I didn't know exactly what to do Someday I'll make it all up to you